shows up during that series. I mean, we, we are a church that desires to connect with first-time guests, but, you know, the first time you show up, they're talking about money, and it kind of, you know, this is the concern people have, is people talk about, this is all the church talks about is, you know, talking about money. But the interesting thing that I find in Scripture is that Jesus talked about this a whole lot, and we, we, uh, we ignore this at our own peril. And so this morning, I want to talk about this, and I want to tell you, we are not a get-rich-quick kind of church. I mean, you can stay at home and turn on cable you know, news channel and, and, and probably see some sermons like that. This isn't a sermon series about how to get rich. It's a sermon series about how to be rich. Because here's the reality of the world we live in here in Collin County. It is so easy to hear the term rich and think that applies to someone else. Until just this last week when one of the members of this church sent me a website that I might want to check out. In fact, you might want to check it out later today. It's called globalrichlist.com. And I went to this website and you can type in your salary for the year. And, uh, and, and it'll show you where you rank on the worldwide scale of world's wealthiest people. What percent in, in terms of how, how much wealth that you have. And it's shocking to look at that because you'll type in that number. And, and let's just say... A family makes $35,000 in a year. That, that family is actually in the top 1% of wealth in the, in the world. Now think about that for a moment. Because it's so easy to look at the people around us and look at the houses around us and think, we're not rich, but when you look at it on the scale of the entire world, we are, I, I want to be careful with my language here. We often talk about this, people are very blessed when they have money. I tell you, God, God blesses people regardless of financial outcome. Blessing is not dependent on financial blessing, okay? So I want us to be very careful about the language we use. But God has put resources in our hands. And that means we're to be good stewards of the resources that he's given to us. So no matter where you stand on the economy, where you stand on, the, on that ranking, we are wealthy people that God has asked to handle our wealth with wisdom. But it's amazing because we have so many things at our disposal, but we are still some of the most discontent people on planet Earth right now. In fact, I, I was listening to a, a, a bit by Louis C.K., who's a comedian, and I, I got to tell you, there's only two places that we go and listen to people talk for long periods of time. We listen to sermons at church and we listen to comedians. That's about it in our culture today. So it's just interesting to kind of see how comedians do their bit and just kind of compare what I'm trying to do. And I, I got to tell you, some of the comedians in our world today are some prophets in our world. And they use humor to kind of get behind things, but they're trying to point out some real issues that go on in our culture. And I, I heard this bit by Louis C.K., and I was convicted because he talked about how we have so many things at our disposal. Everything is amazing in our world, and yet nobody is happy. He talked about a plane ride that he'd been on recently, or he started talking about a, his phone. He grew up in a phone with, with a rotary phone on his wall growing up. Some of you grew up in a house like that too. And, and, and to think about where we are today, but man, you, you start on a rotary phone. I remember my grandparents had a rotary phone to, to look up the weather. You couldn't go to an app. You had to call the weather you know, number to figure out what the weather was going to be. Crazy idea, right kids? And, 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 so, and, and you have to dial on a rotary phone. That's what it means to dial a number. And you remember there are people who had a lot of zeros in their number. And you'd be like, this, this, this is annoying. Really? Can you get the zeros out of there? Let's go with ones and twos. It takes forever to get there, right? And we have cell phones today. And you dial a number. And it takes a little while sometimes if your phone's a little older. And you're like, oh, this is taking forever. Well, it is going up to space and back. You get that, right? I mean, this is, these are satellites. 
It's amazing what the technology we have and the impatience we have with it. Or you talk about going on a plane ride, right? I mean, we have Wi-Fi on our planes. Wi-Fi is not that recent. I mean, it's a recent invention. But Wi-Fi on planes, the other day, he was talking about he was on a plane and and, uh, the Wi-Fi went down and everyone around was like, can you believe this? This is unbelievable, right? But... uh, when you're on a plane, you're, you're sitting in a seat in the sky. Think about that for a second. And yet we complain about it, right? Or how long it takes. You know, you'll hear someone talk about, I was on the tarmac for 40 minutes. Oh, and, and that's a story, right? We go and tell someone about it. 40 minutes, that's so long. You must have missed your next flight. It takes five hours to go from New York to California. Years ago, it would have taken 30 years to get that far, Right? And here we are complaining about 40 minutes on a tarmac. In fact, you know, you go on that, you go on the Oregon Trail, and you got people who die before you get there. You have new babies born. It's like a whole new group of people by the time you get out there. So we live in this world where we have all this expectation. Think about money this way, right? There wasn't ATMs years ago. They had these things called checks that you would write. I know, unbelievable. And, and, and you know, if you, if you ran out of money, you just stopped doing stuff, Right? And you had to go write a check to yourself if there was anything left to get cash out. And then there was the credit card came along, and then the guy was so annoyed when you gave him a credit card at first because he'd have to bring out that machine and go, you know, like that. But now we just, we can buy whatever we want and pay for it later with the things that go along with that, the debt sometimes. And so we live in this world with so much uh, that's going on in our lives, and, and, and I think that's why this is so important for us to understand. This can't be about how to get rich. There are churches that focus on that. That is not the focus of the series. The series is about how we learn to be rich, because we are already rich, those of us who sit in this room. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Let's pray together as we begin our sermon and look in the text this morning. God, we thank you for this book, for the Bible, for the way that these black and white words are more than that, God, that you breathe life into it just as you breathe life into it and inspire these words to be written. So God, I pray today that you would still breathe life into us, that your spirit would connect with our spirits, that where we need to be convicted, that we would feel conviction, and where we need to be um, stepping it up in our, our lives, that we would step it up, where we need to be encouraged, that we would be encouraged. May we leave these doors, God, more encouraged about the way things are than when we walked in. We pray, I pray this, God, and I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in hearts. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, the question I want to ask to begin this morning is this. Why are you not more generous than you already are? Why are you not more generous than you already are? And I asked myself that question this weekend, and I guess the response that comes so easily for me is, I've got a lot of things that I've got to take care of with a family, and if I, I give too much, then there might not be enough for our family. I think about retirement. I think about college. You know, we just started a savings account for our kids for college, and if things continue to grow at the rate we are, we're wondering how in the world that will happen. Here's one of the key reasons that, that we get to this is I, I think we, I, we, we allow our fear about what might be to keep us from the opportunities that God's put in front of us. My good friend Jonathan Storman was at a conference recently and Compassion International was there. We, we support a, a Compassion child ourselves and get the notes and get to write back and forth. Great, great organization. But, but uh, they gave this, uh, you know, a, a handout to each person who was in the room and it had a picture of someone who they could sponsor if they were to step up and support them. And Jonathan got one of these sheets of paper, and it had a face on it, and his name was Juan, this, this kid who was from Guatemala. 
And Jonathan's looking at it and he's saying, man, I feel led to give to this. This is, this is important. This could change Juan's life. And yet he realized that his wife wasn't there to make the decision. They were trying to make a decision to sell their house and move into something a little bit larger. And he wasn't so sure that he could write that check. But then there was this awkwardness of what do you do when you've got Juan in your hands and you go back to the table in the back and go, well, here, here's Juan back, right? I mean, that's an awkward situation. But I think it puts in stark terms a little bit more what we deal with on an everyday basis that's just more personal in that setting than it is with the opportunities we hear about all the time to bless other people, to bless God and his kingdom. Have you ever had that experience before? You felt that tug on your heart to give to something that was going to make a huge difference, but you just weren't sure how the bills would get paid if you happened to give your money to it. And here's what I'm learning as I'm on a journey toward generosity. God knows what's on the other side of my stockpiling and fear. And it's not poverty, it's actually freedom. Now, I think it's poverty. I'm afraid of, of, of giving too much and, and outgiving God. The truth is we can't outgive God. On the other side of giving that up, on the other side of the fear that sometimes keeps us and inhibits us from being generous people, on the other side of that is actually freedom from the things that bind us. One of the turning points to generous giving and, and living doesn't start with what we give away. It starts with being content with what we have. And that's where I want to come to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is the apostle uh, who's seen Jesus, been changed by his story. And he's got this young guy he's mentoring named Timothy. Timothy's a church planner. He's in the city of Ephesus. And he's planning this church in the city. It's a cosmopolitan city. It's this big city. It's kind of like the Vegas of his day. And he's planning this church there. And, and, and his mentor, Paul, is trying to encourage him to say certain things to this church. And one of the things Paul says is, I want you to make sure you challenge people about their money. Because this is something that can really cause problems if they don't get this straight. And all the people in Ephesus, Artemis is a huge god, one of the gods in that area. They have a temple to Artemis there. And if you read in the story of Acts, you see that there are people who are concerned about, about uh, these Christians that are coming in because they're teaching people to think about God with their pocketbooks and not just their pocketbooks in themselves. So business is down for Artemis. And, and so there's this struggle. And so this is what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, look, godliness is not a chance to get rich. That's not what this is about. But he continues on in 1 Timothy 6, in verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now Paul doesn't write a, a real long letter here, but he includes this in here because I think he sees this ravaging people, that, that there's spiritual power in money, and that's sometimes overtaking God's power within them. So he's challenging them about that. And anytime you hear a sermon on this, you'll often hear a caveat that says, now notice, he doesn't say that God hates, or, or the love of, that he, what's evil is loving money. It's, or it's loving, let me get this straight. So, hey, it's easy for you to say, right? It's not money that's the root of evil. It's the love of money that's the root of evil. That's what it says here. So we qualify it, you know, but I think some of us have to acknowledge that we've got money wrapped around us a lot more than we'd like to imagine or admit. So while that's true, that it's the love of money, I, I think we need to question what, how far are we bought into this with the love of money? Is that what's catching us as well? 
So Paul writes Timothy this letter. He's challenging them. And sometimes we think about money in the way I just talked about. It's like, like money's like hanging out with the devil in hell with smoking a cigarette or something like that, right? Money's not evil in that sense. But money can be used for evil or for good. It's a tool that can be used for God's kingdom or it can be used for the evil one's purposes. And what Paul says is contentment is a huge part of this battle. Not too long ago, I saw uh, something hanging on my in-law's wall. It was a picture. This is what it said. It said, it's not having what you want. It's wanting what you have. And I've been sitting with that phrase for a while now. Because we often think, if I could just get what I want, I'll be happy. But, but it's a reminder, kind of like Paul's trying to remind Timothy, that contentment is actually the source of happiness. It's not getting everything you need and you'll be happy. Because we've tried that, haven't we? Trying to buy this and that. Knowing that if, if we can get this house, and finally we'll be happy. And we have the house, we have everything we need, and we're still not happy. We go over to a friend's house, and we think, man, I wish my yard was bigger. Man, I wish I had that TV screen in that media room. It's amazing how we become aware of things, and all of a sudden we're not happy with the things God has given us. Which brings me to another passage that Paul writes. It's a familiar passage of Scripture to you. It's in the book of Philippians, a few books back in the New Testament. So Paul writes to the church at Philippi. And there's a passage, if there's one verse in there you probably memorize, it's the one I'm talking about today. It's Philippians 4, 13. I mean, you've probably memorized this, or maybe you've seen it on the eye black of some football players before. I think it's important to look at the context of this passage. This is what it says, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, the way I often hear this talked about is, you can do anything if God's on your team, right? Which I think we get backwards. It shouldn't be God who's on our team. We're actually on his team, right? That's an important distinction. But, but, but it's like, hey, if you want to score a touchdown, just put that on your eye black and that'll fix everything. I can do anything. And that's not what the context of this passage is. It's actually about contentment. So let's go back to verse 10 and let's read this again in the, in the context that Paul's writing. And remember, Paul is in prison when he's writing these words. I think that's important for what he says. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is not saying that God can do anything for us, right? That's not the context of what Paul's saying. I'm not saying that God can't do anything. He can, he can move mountains by the faith that we have, right? I'm not trying to say that's not true. I'm just saying in this context, Paul is saying, I can do all this, meaning I'm in prison. And no matter the number of zeros that are in my bank account, I've learned to be content no matter the situation. I can even do that through Christ who gives me strength. Now that's an encouragement to some of us who may be struggling with contentment right now. Or struggling with our lives not producing what we need it to produce to get by at the end of the month. What, what Paul's, not, Paul's not saying you can just kind of will it on your own. He's saying, look, you can learn to be content with what you have and what God's given you. And in our American culture, that might be one of the most countercultural values that we could hold. Not that God can produce wealth in us, that we can get rich. It's that we can learn to be rich with what we have and be content with what he's given to us. But the crazy thing is we begin to believe this. We begin to believe that if we could just have more or that God would give us more, that we'd be happy then. You know this? Let me ask you this question. Who's more content? Uh, The the person, uh, the guy with $1 million in his bank account 
or the guy with 12 kids? Let me tell you, it's the guy with 12 kids because he doesn't want any more. Isn't that true, though? Like, we can have as much as we want stockpiled away. But we're always going to want more. We get on this, this wagon where we, we just want to get more, the treadmill to get more and more, and yet it doesn't bring us joy and happiness. Nelson Rockefeller, one of the Rockefellers, was asked one time, how much more do you need? You know what he said in response? Just a little bit more than I can get. Even those who are some of the super wealthy, it's just if we could have more. In fact, there was a survey that was done that asked people, how much more would you need to be paid, have a salary, in order to be content with your life? And you know what the response was? Pretty much across the board, the average came out to 40% more than I have. Now, if you're waiting on that 40%, what that survey tells you is when you get that 40%, you're still going to want another 40%. This, this treadmill will just keep going. We're not going to ever get to that place where we have enough to be content. Contentment is something we have to start with at a beginning point. And when God blesses us, that contentment's going to follow us wherever that goes. Now, we get messages thrown at us a thousand times a day about ads and, and, and messages that come to us about what we don't have and how it will make us happy. We live in a culture that's driven by consumerism. And and this is the definition of consumerism I saw on Google this week. Consumerism is the protection or promotion of the interests of consumers. That sounds really nice, right? Basically, everyone is working for us. Uh, They're working for our interests. But what I found is we can gain a lot of things. We can own a lot of things. But eventually, if we're not careful, those things begin to own us. And so it's kind of this scary thing that we get into and we get into this cycle if we're not careful and don't watch because there are messages being thrown at us. They're just lies. We just sit down and watch commercials today or next week when the Super Bowl's on. And just listen to the the messages that are behind those messages about what you'll get if you'll buy their product. It's the craziest things, especially Super Bowl commercials. Just watch that carefully in the next couple weeks. Do you know that every year in America... 40 billion mail-order catalogs go out to homes around this country. 40 billion. Now, companies don't spend that kind of money because it doesn't work. That's what we all say. Well, it doesn't work with me. They spend that money because they're going to get money in return. As an, It's an investment. And we learn things that we don't have. In fact, one of those, I wrote this illustration Thursday, which Friday didn't make any sense, but I'll go with it. Uh, Sky Mall was one of those things that I'm always like, SkyMall, I'll never look at that. And then you get caught up and you're like, man, I could really use that, right? But I heard Friday that they went out, they're going into bankruptcy. I was like, what am I, where am I going to put my gum now on the plane? <laughs> you, di- you didn't sit on the seat after me. Don't worry about it. But, I, you know, you flip through that and you think, man, man if these people... If if they would do something, get their heads together, they could solve world hunger. They could make peace in the world. But you know what? You know, the the bird feeder with lasers on it, that's cool too, you know? See, the problem that happens is that this year's wants become next year's needs. What I wanted in the future becomes something that I need now. In fact, some stats I was just looking at. From the year 1970 to the year 2000, this is the shift that happened in American culture. In 1970, 20% of American families owned a second car. 20% in 1970. In 2000, 60% of us owned a second car. Did you know that in 1970, 3% of American families owned a second TV? And now over half of us do. And that was 15 years ago now. I mean, 
it just gets worse and worse. The needs, uh, the wants of one generation turn into the needs of the next. Uh, do you guys remember the Razor cell phone? Came out in 2005, right? This was the coolest thing in 2005. I remember my, my wife, she didn't want just a regular, she wanted a pink Razor. I still got it on my desk as a reminder. I was like, you'll never want another phone, right? It's the last great thing you'll want. But isn't this how it works? We think we get something great and then something better comes. You know what they call this phone now? A dumb phone. But in 2005, it was the greatest thing that you can imagine. So I'll confess myself. We were in line for an iPhone 6 the other day. I told you this story a few weeks ago. And this tells you, be careful who's around you because the preacher might be around making a sermon illustration out of you, okay? But I took this picture as we were waiting in line with the, the iPhone 6 behind and the ad at the Apple store. And what do you see? You see people on their cell phones waiting to get a cell phone. That's how we... That's how Holly and I were, you know, we were playing games on our cell phone. We were looking up. Here we are with an iPhone 4 or an iPhone 5 trying to get an iPhone 6, and we're standing with what we need in our hands, but there's something just a little bit better that we could get we think might just fill that void in our lives. And I'm not just pointing at the two of us, right? This is, this is all of us at some level, isn't it? We buy a TV, and the next week the better one comes, goes on sale. Or, or we get the software, and it's, it won't even go on to our hardware anymore, right? Because it doesn't, I mean... This is how it works. And Apple has perfected planned obsolescence. You know this term? This term was coined in 1932 by a guy named Bernard London. He wrote a book called, um, let me get this right, Ending the Depression Through Planned Obsolescence. And as far as I can tell, that's the first time that term comes up. The rationale is, look, if we can get people to buy, and this is the definition he gave of planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence is instilling in the buyer the desire to own something a little newer, a little better, a little sooner than is necessary. How many of us can say that's us? How many of you right now, you have boxes full of cassette tapes and DVD and VHSs that are now sitting in the attic because you've been a victim of planned obsolescence? Like, I wish our kids could watch the Disney ones we had growing up, and now we've got to buy DVDs for them because I don't have a working VCR. And this is the way life works. We get on this treadmill, and, and we think contentment's around the next thing, and then they launch the next phone, or they launch the next project, and Blu-ray's going to be gone in just a few years. It's just how it works in our world. So why is marketing so effective? Well, I think the answer is found in one single word, and that word is Awareness. Awareness. Ads and, and in marketing and all of this makes us aware of things we don't have. We never knew we needed it until we saw it and wanted it and once turned into needs. Because you've been there before, right? You have two or three things on your grocery list and you go to the grocery store. And by the time you're finished, you have, you have a whole grocery cart full of things. You didn't need those Twinkies, but they sure showed up somehow, right? And they know how to put it right there where your kids are going to see it at eye level or you're going to see it at the end. And it's amazing how this works. Our brain just turns once into needs and all of a sudden we go places we never thought we'd go. So what do we do about this? How do we fight the discontentment that our world tries to build into us? I, I believe that awareness goes two directions. One of them is what I just mentioned. You can be made aware of what you don't have. And when you know what you don't have, you all of a sudden want those things. But awareness can go the other way too. We can be, become aware not just of what we don't have. We can be, become aware of what others don't have that they should have. Have you ever taken a mission trip before? If you haven't, I encourage you to think about it this next year. If you have, 
join us. We're going to be talking more in March about missions and about some short-term mission trips you can go on, some opportunities over spring break to serve in Collin County. These opportunities are opportunities to change awareness. And, and why, why that is, I remember going to Honduras for the first time, stepping into a third world country. And I remember looking around and seeing something that we didn't have in the U.S. It was joy. It was contentment. We could buy all of this stuff, but what I realized was you cannot buy joy and contentment. But what it was, was we, oh, we, we all of a sudden saw these people had joy and contentment. There's a widow whose husband passed away while we were there. I don't know how she was going to get by after this. The church was going to have to take care of her. But I remember thinking, what would it be like in, in America if, if this happened? My wife would be taken care of. We've got family here who could take care of us. We have resources. But my question is, with everything we give our kids, with everything we give ourselves, I don't know that we can buy the joy and contentment that they had. And I would give anything to have the, what, I, the, what I saw on their faces. When we become aware of opportunities, we get to serve and bless others who get to be a part of those resources. But the great thing that happens in the midst of that is we become aware not of what we don't have, but the things we do have. And all of a sudden, contentment looks different. I remember coming back to the States, and my whole vision for this was different when I saw what I had, what others didn't. I didn't take for granted the things that I had before. Because awareness works two ways. It works naturally, because in this culture, you're going to see the things you don't have. Culture's going to make sure you get that message. What Paul's trying to say to Timothy, and what I'm trying to share with you is, make sure you become aware to those things around you that are in need. Because through that, we have a chance to serve others, and all of a sudden become more content with the very things God's given to us. This is a hard word for those of us in our culture, because everywhere you look, I mean, think about this, there are billions of dollars that have already been spent for commercial slots next Sunday. Trying to do this whole thing to get us to become discontent with what we have, but let's launch an assault on that next week. Let's see through that. Let's begin to look at other things. Let's go on a mission trip and see how that might change our lives. That's what Paul's doing in Philippians 4. He's trying to give them awareness. And I want to finish this morning by reading the rest of what he says in chapter 4. We usually just read 13. I've read 10 to 13. But look at what he says in 14 and following. He says to, uh, to the church at Philippi, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. This is a guy in jail who's writing this. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul's trying to say to him? He's saying, you remember that time when you gave when you knew of my need? What you did is you became aware of a need, and all of a sudden it shaped everything else in your life. You were able to give to it. And look at what it's done in my life. And now I'm content because God's taking care of me. It's a sharing of the body together. At the end of Paul's life, he goes through a lot of court trials in the book of Acts. We don't get all the details of what happens, but you see a theme running through several books that he writes, several letters to churches. He talks about an offering that he's going to take up to take to the Jerusalem church. I think this is really important what Paul's doing. We don't know how it ends up. It may be that the church in Jerusalem takes the money but then imprisons him anyway. 
There's some Jewish agitators there that are causing problems. And, and he ends up in prison. He ends up dying at the hands of the Roman Empire. But this is his last kind of, of effort on behalf of the church. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to make these Gentiles aware of all that's happened before. This church in Jerusalem, these were uh, the people of God. And, and now you've been grafted into the story. Now you get to be a part of it. But you don't just get to be a part of the blessings of it. I'm asking you to contribute to this Jerusalem church. Because in a few years, Jesus foretold this, that in AD 70, that church and the city around it are destroyed. This was a body that was in need of help. And all of a sudden, all these churches that didn't know Jesus before, now they know about Jesus, and they're offering back to these people who are in trouble. I think what Paul's doing is one of two things. One is he's trying to create awareness for these people. Hey, there are others in need. You've got more than you need in Macedonia, the church at Philippi. They step up to do this. In 2 Corinthians, he praises this church again. They gave beyond their means. They had awareness. The other thing he's trying to do is he's trying to unite this body of believers that can be split so easily between Jews and Gentiles. He says, same thing we said week one, where your treasure is, your heart's going to be also. If you'll give to this church in Jerusalem, you're going to care more about these people as well. So my challenge this week to all of us is that we would set our awareness in the right places. Some parts of awareness are going to come at us just by watching TV or driving along a highway with billboards. That thing comes easy. But you can set your awareness in another trajectory, another direction. Take your kids to different schools than the one your kids go to. Take, think about some of the, the, the schools in our community where there are more reduced lunches served than not. We have these issues and opportunities in Collin County to bless people, but the greatest blessing may not be what we give to others. It may be what we receive in return. And that is an awareness that God has blessed us richly. And maybe there's something we can learn about joy and contentment in people we never would have imagined we could have learned it from. That we can actually be the students rather than the teachers. Let's pray together as we close our time in the Word. God, I thank you so much for awareness, God. And God, I, I just, I pray that we would have our eyes open this week. That we would have our eyes open to the insidious ways that our culture tries to make us less than content. Help us to see that, God, we have so much, and that means we have so much responsibility, that you are the owner, and we're just stewards, God, but we get to bless others, and through that blessing, we get to have awareness, God, that you're trying to pour through us your offering. You're trying to pour through us your blessing. This may be the way the American church has to bless the world right now. As things are downhill here, God, we still have resources to bless others with. So, God, we pray for revival in this place, but, God, would you give us a vision to see how our money and our resources might bless your kingdom throughout the world in ways it's growing beyond imagination. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life and his vision that he gave us for what it means to live a life of contentment. Help us to do that this week. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, this, week, uh, this weekend, we got to go with about 25 other guys to a, a men's conference at the Hills Church of Christ in, in, in Richland Hills. And it was a great event. We had a lot of guys there. Great stuff from a guy named Donald Miller who's read, written a couple books you might have read. But through that, I realized this can't just be a conference or a retreat we go to. And that's what Man Church is trying to develop over the last year or so and into this next year. And so I want to encourage you to think about being a part of this starting this week. Heath Thrillman's going to come up right now, in fact, and uh, tell us more uh, about Man Church and how you might be involved, some of the men of this congregation. I want to be like Colin.
Isn't it great to have Colin here? Can we acknowledge him? So I'm up here to uh, announce that Man Church is starting this Wednesday at uh, 7 o'clock. I actually said 7.30 in the first service, so you may have some extra people coming a little late. And Keith asked me to uh, talk about it just a second, and I, I know because I'm hungry too, I want to leave too, so I'm just going to talk for just a second. A little bit about what we're going to talk about. Uh, you remember the story in the Bible where Jesus is going to be crucified and he's telling the apostles he's going to be crucified and he tells Peter that he's going to deny him several times? And Peter argues with Jesus and says, no, I'm, I'm not going to deny you. In fact, he starts actually yelling at Jesus that he's not going to deny him. And just as a side note, if you get the chance to argue with God, I advise you against yelling at God, okay? I appreciate that. First service didn't laugh. I thought, I thought it was really funny. <clears throat> and I wondered, you know, in those moments in your life, when your life kind of flashes before your eyes and things are going real slow, like a car wreck, or you see a car wreck and you know you don't want to look, but you're going to look, and you're just really terribly afraid, I wonder what... Peter was thinking that Jesus' reaction was going to be to the third time he denied him. And like, man, he's going to be so disappointed in me. He's going to reject me. He's going to tell me to go away and not be around him anymore. And that's the kind of things we talk about in man church. What are the stories we're telling ourselves that they're not really true? They're not really reality of what's going on with God. And so I encourage you to be there. We're going to, as men, we're going to encourage each other and we're going to challenge each other and we're going to hold each other accountable and we're going to try to improve ourselves and become more aware of who we are as men and husbands and fathers and uh, everything in between. And at last man church, a uh, guy even came up to me, ladies, if you need a uh, reason to encourage your husband, he said she wanted him to help around the house and change poopy diapers. And he even said poopy diapers and I think that was important to her. And so he did that and I thought that was funny too. And that didn't go well either. <clears throat> Please come. Uh, there's a lot of things that we deal with as men that we can use encouragement with each other. And if you don't know what Jesus did when he turned and looked at Peter, I think we know. I think he went. We'll be standing out for our benediction as we close our time and our service. There's no need to get rich because we already are. We serve a God, though, who wants us to be rich, to live rich lives, to be aware of the needs around us and to serve those needs. And so may we be a people this week who bless the people around us in ways we wouldn't have before, who, who become aware of the needs that are around us and become content with what God has given us because it is enough, amen? May we love God, may we love people, and may we serve others. Go in peace.